Welcome to the American Grown Podcast, hosted by Austin Sullivan. The American Grown Podcast will focus on people from different walks of life and their journey to where they are now. Now, turn up your volume and settle in for a great episode. Hi, I'm Austin Sullivan, and I'm your host for the American Grown Podcast, recorded inside the ColorTech Creative Solutions Studios. Today, we have Brad Peterson, Executive Director at Power Packs Project. He's worked in commercial TV for six years before starting his journey of nonprofit work, which he's dedicated more than 30 years of his life. Brad, welcome to episode 15 of the American Grown Podcast. Thank you, Austin. Glad to be here. Brad, thank you so much for coming in. Uh, I had reached out to you over social media because I wanted to learn more about Power Packs Project, like you have on your shirt there. You know, I'm glad you could could join me. Well, I'm happy to join you and, t- and talk about uh, what, what brought me here. Let's start off because to be on the podcast for the listeners out there, you have to fill out a pretty extensive form. I think you would agree um, with a bunch of different questions and your your bio and everything really intrigued me. So I, like I said, I wanted to get you in, um, but let's kind of start off with your early childhood. I just like to get a, a base of, of everybody for the listeners. So I grew up in uh, rural Mifflin County. If you don't know where Mifflin County is, it's up right in the center of the state. Um, everyone knows Lewistown, which is the town of Mifflin County, because it's the McDonald's on the way to Penn State, right, yes. off, right off the highway. Yep. Every, that's what everybody knows Lewistown for. Um, and um, I grew up, it was, uh, you know, uh, kind of what I would consider normal childhood of someone growing up in the 60s. I'm dating myself. You can tell how old I am. Uh, we uh, we fished in the stream near the house where I grew up. We were outside all the time in the backyard playing wiffle ball or in the winter riding sleds. You know, it was one of those childhoods where uh, when the light came on the porch, my mom was saying it was time to come in for dinner. That's that's an awesome childhood to have because, you know, now uh, technology, more things come out. You got your iPads and your Facebook. Um, people don't do that. But I, I can remember when mom turned on that light, you know, you got off your bike and you got in the house. You know, it was time to go. So now in high school, were there any mentors or coaches that, you know, maybe helped guide you to where you are now? I did a lot of different sports. Um, I had a couple coaches, a couple teachers who definitely put me on a path. To, well, to where I am now. I, I had uh, an English teacher in, I think it's 10th or 11th grade. I think it, I think I was a junior in high school. Um, Mrs. Summers, okay. who really taught me the love of reading. Um, you know, I, I, I read sporadically before that, but a lot of it was, you know, you read for school because you had to. Mm-hmm. But she introduced me to some things. And I, I couldn't even tell you if, if I remember what books they were or anything. But really, and to this day, I love to read. Uh, I, I'm, I constantly have one or two. I probably have 10 books in my queue right now. Oh, wow. Um, and I read fiction, nonfiction, a lot of different things. But she really uh, brought that out in me. Yeah. I, just loving to read. And I ran cross country and track. I had a coach that um, I think really helped uh, instill some of that hard work, that work ethic. Um, you know, if you're running cross country and you're, and you're running long distances, it's something that you you have to put in the time, you have to put in the miles right. if you're going to be any good. And um, you know, I, I was brought up that way. My my father really had a instilled a work ethic in my brothers and I. But you know, running cross country and track, and I was a distance runner, really makes you understand the meaning of hard work, getting out there and doing it just by yourself, just because you're you know 
while you're competing against other runners, you're, you're competing against yourself as much as anything. It's all on yourself and, and motivating and pushing yourself to, to go further. I mean, sure, you can chase the guy in front of you and, and, and keep up with them. But if you really want to succeed, it's, I think, a mental game. Um, I had done track here at Cedarcrest, but I was a thrower. I never did the cross country or anything like that. I had a thrower buddy. Um, his name was Wolf, and, and he did cross country. And I just looked at him. I said, Wolf, you're crazy. You know, these guys are running miles and miles and, and you know, sweating and dying out there. And he said, no, it, it, it made him mentally tough. And uh, side note, now he's a Capital City police officer mm. down in D.C. And, and, he, and, you know, I think, like you said, it's that mental mindset um, to push yourself. Yeah. I mean, you know, you think of that and, you know, obviously it's very physical. Mm-hmm. You, have, you have to be in shape or else you can't do it, but it really is a, a mental game. It, you, you learn to push yourself beyond what you think you can do and deal with whatever aches and pains and, right. you, you know, you have as you're running, you know, even to the point of, you know, the, the course we had in high school where I ran that went through some, some, some trees, some forests, and we would snap branches on our competitors behind us <laughs> to try to break up some of that focus and yeah. make them lose their concentration and whatever a little bit. And, uh, you know, maybe that sounds a little bit, um, mean to do, but you know, it's just one of those little things, little tricks that you do. It's like a mind game, and, and, you know, and, and talk to people, you know, whatever, but it, it really is very, very mental, much more than people would think. You, uh, had gone to Penn State. What was that like? Cause everyone has a different experience. I went to main campus. Okay. So the, just, just across the mountain. Yes. In many ways it, it, started shaping me into who I am. Like I said, it's very rural. Lewistown's a fairly decent-sized town, but really didn't introduce me to many things to broaden my horizons, so right. to speak. So, you know, going to Penn State, obviously, it's very large. You know, there, there are classes that, you know, you have four or 500 people in a class. Um, not all of them are that way, which I like to tell people. Um, I, I had classes with six, seven, eight people in once I got more into my major and everything. Um, but introduced me to just, I remember my first semester at Penn State, I had an anthropology class. And the professor was one of the world's foremost experts on this tribe in the Amazon. The textbook was written by him. The films he showed in class, he was there living in the Amazon with these people. Wow. And it was just an amazing experience because it was something that I never even thought about in the past, never considered. And those are some of the experiences you get there. I had the great opportunity when I was there to be chosen to do a study abroad program. Uh, so I did a semester in England at the University of Manchester. That uh, truly opened my eyes to an entirely different culture. You know, people always joke saying, yeah, you got it easy. You went to, to England. They, they speak English. Yeah, they do. But the accent can be really tough sometimes. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's not like speaking French or Spanish or German. But it was, it was to me really what opened my eyes to an entirely different way of life, new people. So Penn State was was a great experience for me. Penn State, how I look at it, is such a, a melting pot of all kinds of people from all over the world. You can uh, make friends with, like I said, people all over the world and those connections that can last you a, a lifetime, yeah. you know, that you make there. I'm assuming then, well, you must be a, a football fan. I am. Okay, so what's the backstory? Because on your bio, you said you got to carry out Penn State's first national championship trophy onto the field. And what was that experience like? Because it's different. I've been there, you know, blue-white game and things like that. You're all pumped up, you know, white out. But what's it like to be down there on the field? So I have to give a little bit of the backstory. So uh, my senior year at Penn State, uh, I worked as the statistician for the Penn State radio network. 
So I sat beside Fran Fisher, the legendary Fran Fisher, wow, yeah. who actually got his start in radio in Lewistown. Oh, wow. So, so we had that in common. And John Grant, who was the color guy. And I sat there. And this was pre-computer stats and everything. So everything was, I kept them stats by hand. Oof. So I made up my own sheets to keep, you know, rushing, defense, you know, passing, all those kinds of stats. And I would pass them notes during the games for them to use on, on the radio broadcast. So I got to know them very well, traveled. Actually, I sat in the press box at the Sugar Bowl when they beat Georgia for the national championship. Nice. Yeah, that's uh, awesome. So I got, I got, I got uh, some great experiences out of that. Anyway, so that spring, I was a senior and I was doing an internship at WTAJ-TV in Altoona and doing a lot of Penn State work, and they had me go cover the blue-white game. So I was there with one of their camera guys. I was up in the press box before the game, and Fran came up to me and said, hey, I have a favor to ask of you. Could you help me with something at halftime? It's like, sure, Fran, whatever you want. Absolutely. Unbeknownst to me, what he wanted was for me to help him take the national championship trophy oh, wow. down on the field Talk at about halftime. A surprise. Yeah. yeah. So he came and gathered me a little bit before... It was Fran uh, Herschel Nissenson, who was the lead AP Associated Press writer, and myself. And they handed me the trophy. We took it from the press box down the elevator, walked out on the field, and I handed it to Herschel, who then handed it to Joe Paterno. Jeez, um, <laughs> oh yeah! Wow. Were you nervous? Were you kind of shaking? Or well, you know, like I, I will say that my palms are probably a little sweaty. A little sweaty. <laughs> you know, don't drop it. Whatever you do, right. don't drop yeah. it. Oh my gosh! Yeah. <laughs> oh, that would be terrible. <laughs> um, but one, yeah. one of those lesser-known things that people don't know, I don't think there are any photos that exist. Fran and Joe are both gone at this point. Um, so it's it's in my memory, and that's about the only places it exists right now. Yeah, that is special. Wow. I mean, <laughs> holy cow. To be that close and, and to actually hold the trophy, hand it off to Joe Paterno. Yeah. Wow. Obviously, you don't have to say it, but legend. Legend yeah. uh, in football in general, but definitely up in State College. So now, how did you then transfer into... TV, because I, I know you have some TV background. It sounds like a couple of years in the industry. Um, was it a connection from State College, or how did that work out for you? So I mentioned that I was doing an internship at WTAJ, and I worked in, at WTAJ briefly after graduation. Um, I also did some radio work. I was doing some radio at that time. Uh, and then a full-time opportunity came up in Harrisburg at the ABC affiliate. So I transitioned from Altoona to, to Harrisburg, uh, and I worked at the ABC affiliate there for about six years, doing mostly producing, writing. Because of my sports background, I did a lot of sports. Um, had the opportunity to travel to spring training many years, covered Penn State football, covered Hershey Bears hockey. Um, I was on the ice when they won the Calder Cup in Canada one year. Oh, wow. Um, so I had a lot of great, great opportunities, a lot of great memories from my time working uh, in TV as well. Yeah. Um, so... Before you went out, you know, to do a broadcast, what would you do to prepare mentally? Was there anything you would go through or, or did you have like a routine that you would do? Really, it was a matter just about research, uh, depending on what the story was, trying to, to research and learn as much as I could. And then when you're interviewing someone, you ask a lot of questions, yeah. far more than you would ever use in whatever story you're doing. And that's your background information. And I remember doing a story once at, at Penn National, talking to jockeys. Uh, I knew very little about horse racing, but you learn by talking to them. And then that's that's really how you f frame your story and, and build your story from that. That makes sense. So now while doing the TV, uh, was there a certain moment, whether sports or not, that really stood out to you 
you know, maybe it was with the Hershey Bears, but was there something that really stood out to you? Well, uh, yeah, there obviously is one. Uh, and this was not sports. I, I did news as well. Um, I was actually running a camera at this time, okay. doing some, some work. And I actually captured a building blowing up in a, from a gas explosion. Whoa. Live? I like got you a, were I, there? I, I, was, it was, I was recording it. Yeah. It was not live. Um, but I actually got it on camera. And um, I'm proud to say that I was the first local Emmy nominee from this market for that video, for that story of the Kitchen yeah. Works catering company uh, exploding. Exploding. <laughs> <laughs> I, I did not win. I was I just going to ask I, you I, that. I did not win the Emmy. And everyone who says, yeah, it's just a pleasure to be nominated, they're, they're, they're right. It was. But I, I, I wanted the trophy. I wanted to win. I'm not going to deny it. Right. I wanted that trophy. Yeah, of course. Of course. <laughs> that would have been so cool. <laughs> wow. The fact that you could catch that moment and be there to record it. Part of what we do here at, at Color Tech is sports photography. So um, I've got to cover a couple of the blue-white games. Mm-hmm. And to tie it in is, you know, I've actually, myself, once, I got down on the field to take pictures. I had a Nikon uh, camera, and that's what I was shooting with. You know, you always see the, the cameramen with these big, bulky cameras strapped on their shoulders and everything. And I thought, man, I, I thought I had it tough trying to figure out the <laughs> angles and you know the shutter speed and everything but these guys are running around like crazy what was that experience like with the equipment it, it's it's just what you said i mean uh equipment now does not let people understand what it was like back in the 80s in the 80s you were carrying around about 75 pounds of equipment holy with the camera the recorder was separate the battery packs you had to wear uh it was it was an entirely different ball game than what it, the digital cameras look like now so, so lugging that around on the side of a football field, and sometimes depending on where you were and how, um, sometimes they made you kneel. Okay, yep. So that made it a little more strenuous on your back, but it was always a pleasure. And no matter no matter how strenuous and, and difficult it might be, mm-hmm. no matter what the weather was like, rain, cold, whatever, it was always just great being on the sidelines. The, the one thing I will say is, and you wouldn't think this was different, but because you know Penn State plays at a very high level, a lot of guys go on to the NFL. The difference between the college game and the pro game is not just negligible. It, in the college game, you see guys coming towards you on your on the sideline. You can still kind of think about, yeah, I can move, I can get out of the way. In the pro game, they are so big and so fast. Speed. You found that if they started coming towards you, you needed to be, start backing up the instant you saw them coming, because otherwise they would just take you out, knock you out, yeah. <laughs> and break all that valuable equipment. Yeah, <laughs> you know that's one of the things I, I say is you can't beat the seats. I mean, you're right there, you're right up front. You know, you can't get a better seat in the place. And then I always joke around, but pretty serious. I'd rather break my arm than break the camera equipment. You know, because yeah. um, some of the lenses and things we have, which, like you said, is is very valuable. You know, it's not uh, cheap. The equipment I'm sure you were using. But uh, you can't beat that experience of being down on the field. Never got to cover a uh, a pro game like an Eagles or Steelers or something mm-hmm. like that. But I can uh, just the jump from high school football to college covering that blue white game was like wow, just night and day difference. So what was the transition like for you going from TV? You know, you have a pretty extensive background in TV and, and broadcasting, and then going into nonprofit. And why the transition? The, the transition is actually easy. Uh... You know, t- TV is, you know, it sounds glamorous and, yeah. and and there are parts of it that are, but it's, it's a lot of long hours. It's a lot of nights, weekends. And to be perfectly honest, um, I got married, I started a family yeah. and all of a sudden the idea of working weekends and holidays and all that, um, 
doesn't sound so great. Yeah, not all what it's cracked up yeah, to be. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I trans out, transitioned out of TV uh, to get more of a nine to five job. Uh, and I took a job with a large health system in Harrisburg doing communications, marketing, PR. I, had, I worked there for nearly 20 years and had a variety of different roles. But just for something that was a little more uh, normal, hours-wise, right. gave gave up the, the, the glamour of TV, if you will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the hospital, is that like UPMC is there now? It, it, it was the predecessor to that. So when okay. I started, it was, it was Capital Health System, which became Pinnacle Health, which became UPMC. Oh, wow. Yes. So were you there for some of that transition or the, you were the early, early? I was there in Capital Health System and then when it transitioned to Pinnacle Health. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. What was that like being a marketing director for and, and helping with, with the communications for such a large hospital? Um, it was challenging. Uh, it, it was a system that grew over my time there. Um, I think when I left, there were something like 60-some different locations, four different hospitals, I was doing a lot more of the PR, mm-hmm. um, some marketing, some advertising, a little bit of, you know, had my hands in a little bit of everything. Um, but it was, it was exciting in a different way yeah. because you, you got to see projects go from concept to completion. And, and, and you know, you talk about doing photography, yes. you know, whether it was photography or video, doing commercials, um, you know, or launching a, a new product line, for instance, or something, some new technology we came in. And bringing in the people from TV and from the print media and talking about that and then seeing the stories on TV to promote it and building that and building then the, 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 the customer base behind it. it was, that, that was exciting in a different way. I'm telling you how large corporations and family businesses, how they market themselves and how mm-hmm. they promote themselves and what works for one company might not work or one hospital might not work for another depending on the demographic and the areas that they're in. So it's always interesting to hear, you know, what, what other people do for, for their business. So now becoming director of Power Packs Project, let's get some background. Where did that originate? So Power Packs started in Lancaster. Our founder, uh, a woman named Joan Espenshade, was volunteering at an elementary school in, in Lancaster. She, it's, this was 2005, and she continually was seeing children at the nurse's station lined up on Monday mornings. And finally, she went to the nurse and asked why and it was because the kids hadn't eaten all weekend. And they, really? were, they were there because they had a bellyache. They're starving. Yeah. You can't concentrate. You yeah. Know. So um, Joan, being the amazing woman that she is, uh, knew that she could not just sit by idly and not do something about that. So as she likes to put it, she, uh, she put together what she called a kitchen table committee. Uh, so, some friends, some family, some people she went to church with, you know, whatever. And they started brainstorming around what they could do about this. So they started um, serving 14 families in that one elementary school. They would go out to Giant or Wise or wherever and buy groceries, buy things to give to those families. Transition now, 17 years later, from those humble beginnings, uh, Power Packs now is in nine school districts in Lancaster County. Wow five school districts in Lebanon County, a total of 14 school districts, over 70 schools. And last year we provided over 400,000 meals. Holy cow. Wow. All from that uh, small start, that humble beginning, and all because you saw these kids coming in. That's, I mean, that's affecting a lot of people, a lot of young youth coming through. So how did, how did, uh, what's the procedure? How do kids become eligible or get selected? And then what do they have to do from there? 
Power packs, I, I mentioned the, all the school districts that we're in and all the schools. Yes. So we work directly with the schools because that's where the kids and their parents are. So what we do is we have a, a liaison in every school. It's Sometimes it's a social worker or a guidance counselor. Sometimes it's, it's a teacher. They help us promote the program to their parents. Um, we go to back to school nights, you know, mm-hmm. all those kinds of things. They put uh, information about power packs on their school websites and social media. And how it works is then, so so parents need to enroll okay. in, in our program. Typically, anyone who is eligible for school, uh, free, free and reduced breakfasts and lunches in schools yep. is eligible for power packs. Then once a week, our volunteers in our, our warehouses pack the packs Volunteers deliver them to the schools, and then either kids take them home or the parents come and pick them up. That is hundreds and hundreds of families every week. Well, how big is your warehouse? I mean, how many how many people behind the scenes? This is quite the operation. I mean, I, I knew a little bit about, but I didn't know it was to this scale. I mean, this so is massive. The, the, the thing I like to tell people is, I, I so I, I just said we did 400,000 meals last year. Right. Um, we have a staff of six. What? We, we have five full-time and one part-time person. But what sets us apart is we have, and I actually just verified this number yesterday. In the last year, we had 264 active volunteers. Holy cow. Volunteers pack all the food. Volunteers deliver all the food to the schools. Volunteers are a big, play a big part in the distribution process at the schools. Um, we could not do what we do without the volunteers because we couldn't afford to pay people to do all the work that they do. Wow. Shout out to all the volunteers at Power Packs throughout the area because that's phenomenal. I expect you to say you had, you know, this large, large force of, of full-time employees because how else could you get it done? But the fact that so many people care and are willing to donate their time and do this for for these children th- throughout the, the area is, is really amazing. Yeah. We have yeah. some volunteers that have been doing this for years and they're in our warehouse every week. Sometimes more than even one day a week. Warehouse located uh, Lancaster, Lebanon, or throughout? So we have a, one warehouse in Lancaster. It's in the Greenfield Complex off 30. And we have a Lebanon warehouse also to say, serve our Lebanon schools. Um, we, we lease space from Sunset. Yes. It's up beside okay. Sunset Outlet up on, on 7th Street just as you're going out of the city. That's a great location. So do you see, uh, obviously there's a need. You found a market where there's a, a huge need. Do you see growing into other areas? I don't know like Reading, Harrisburg? Growth is part of our plan within our footprint and beyond that. So we're, like I said, we're in five school districts in, in Lebanon County. There's one school district we are not in. Um, we're actually having conversations with them now. Oh, good. Yeah. Um, same thing with a couple of school districts in Lancaster County. Um, we actually have also started having discussions in Berks County, in yeah. Reading, and in York County, in a, in a school district or two there as great, well. Great areas, uh, and, and hopefully the schools will, will jump on board. I don't see any downside to the districts. It's great that we can do it. It's it's terrible. We have to. But there are a lot of families out there struggling, and we're seeing it even more now with inflation, you know, prices at the gas pump, prices at the right. grocery store. You see it. I see it. Everyone sees yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, it, it affects us at power packs as well for things that we have to purchase. This past summer, we do we do a, a 35-week school year program, and then we do also do an eight-week summer program because, you know, hunger doesn't go away during the summer just because kids aren't in school. Right. Uh, this past summer, our numbers were almost triple what they were the summer before. Wow. Just because of inflation, prices going up and everything. Uh, there, there are a lot of different reasons, but that yeah. is definitely one of them. Wow. Uh, we're enrolling families now. Our school year program starts on September 21st. Um, we're enrolling families now, and we're looking at uh, a 
even right now where we stand with a couple weeks to go as we're recording this before that, our numbers look like they're going to be much higher than they were last school year. It'll, it'll be interesting, you know, maybe I'll have you back on at some point, but to hear uh, how it grows and everything and, and, and where these numbers are at. Um, but let's kind of segue because I like where you're going. How can families, you know, apply? Is there a website? I know you've mentioned going through their school districts, but, you know, maybe, and I don't know if, if this is offered, but how, how can they get in touch? Like if a, a family's really struggling, they hear this podcast, what's the best procedure they can do um, on our website you can you can find our phone number you can either call us and we'll walk you through the process or the enrollment form is actually right on our website um, so if you go to our website which is powerpacksproject.org if you go on there uh, on the, the I think it's the about us tab on top if you click on that uh, the form is right there for you to enroll in our program perfect Brad your job there you're the director so what does that entail what's uh, kind of like your average day look like I don't know that there is an average day. Uh, I, I knew you would ask that. Everyone, Lots of people ask me that. And one of the things I love about my job is that no two days really are alike. So, you know, operations, logistics, there's a lot of that. Um, we meet weekly to talk about that. There, there are a lot of moving parts, mm-hmm. trying to get food in. Because one of the things that we do that's, that's really unique to us, and we think we are the only program in okay. the country that does this, is... Um, we provide a recipe and all the ingredients for that recipe as part of the pack families get. Oh, wow. Well, I think it's a great idea. Um, it's not just food for the kids. That promotes hoarding. Uh, we want the families to enjoy this. We promote the families preparing the meal together and sitting down mm-hmm. and having the meal together to strengthen that family dynamic as well. So that's something that's that's important to us. Obviously, we, we can't make people do that, but we encourage it. Right. So because everyone is getting all of the ingredients for this recipe... Um, everyone has to get the same things. So there's a lot of logistics involved in us um, procuring the food that has to go to that. Whether it's fresh produce, there's always fresh produce every week. There's fresh milk every week, um, as well as the non-perishable goods. So how do you how do you secure all these, like you said, these these perishable goods that, you know, milk doesn't last long. You have your fruits, your vegetables, and these different ingredients. How do you go about getting them? To, where do they come from? Is it like a I'm just throwing this out there, but is it a Walmart? Is it a local grocer? You know, how do you how do you get all these? Well, well and that and that's a big part of my job. Um, you you asked that. So, for instance, for milk, we've started a partnership with Harrisburg Dairies. We p- actually place an order to them on a Wednesday. Over the weekend, they produce the milk exact just for us. Um, on Tuesday, Monday and Tuesday, they deliver the milk to our two warehouses. And on Wednesday and Thursday, it goes out the door to families. Wow, that's amazing. That turnaround time so quick. So that way, prior to that, we would occasionally get donations of milk, but Mm -hmm. not always enough for everyone, usually at the end of their shelf life. This mm. way, families have the full shelf life of the milk, and it's it's a great partnership. Um, We work with a lot of local growers to get fresh produce, um, whether Lancaster County, Lebanon County, even one big farm down in northern Maryland. That we travel down there yeah. to get fresh produce. Um, and that comes from a variety of places. Obviously, during the non-harvest season, mm-hmm. for the most part, we buy the fresh produce we have to get. And a lot of the non-perishables come from the Central Pennsylvania Food Bank, okay. large regional food bank in Harrisburg. Actually, and I've worked there for a time as well, so I have a lot of great contacts That's there. That's perfect, those connections, yeah. yeah. 
Um, uh, and, but non-perishables come from grocery store chains, from wholesalers, mm -hmm. from a lot of different um, options for us to to be able to get that food in the door. I really like how you mentioned, you know, you have the recipes there. Because how does the saying go? I might butcher it, but give a man a fish, he eats for a day. You know, teach a man to fish, he'll eat for his life, rest of his life. And that's kind of what you all are trying to do. Um, instead of a quick fix, hey, here's your here's your meal. And then, you know, they, they hoard it or they take it. Um, trying to educate, you know, this is better for you. Right. Eating this food. Yeah. Yeah. We, we, we you know, the, the meals they get are healthy. We're trying to introduce them to some new foods and we're empowering them to take better control of their diet. Um, you know, and when we give them that recipe, we actually give them the cost, what the ingredients would cost okay. to go to the grocery store and buy it. We try to keep every recipe to about $5, no more than seven. So that people can see that for for $5, $7 a week, they can prepare a healthy meal for their family. Yeah, for not a, not a whole lot of money at all. Um, and that goes back to the education part. Uh, now, do you see at uh, Power Packs the difference between the, the children that aren't eating the proper nutrients and those that you're supplying food to? What are you noticing differently about them? I mean, I'm sure more awake, better health, things like that. So we're in the middle, in, in year two of a research study with Georgetown University. Who are, they're studying power packs families. Um, some of the preliminary data we've seen is that we, uh, families who pick up their power packs on a regular basis, see much less incidence of uh, food insecurity, um, much less stress, um, much less times of anger. We, we survey them weekly. Uh, one of the big things that we want to look at long term is if power packs impacts academic success. Right. Because yeah. what we want to do is make sure kids come to school Monday morning fed and ready to learn. Because that's where it started. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That is our mission so that they're not thinking about that rumbling in their tummy because they haven't eaten. So um, we're, we're just now starting to collect some data from the school districts so that we can anonymously compare kids that are receiving power packs to kids who aren't and see if it's making a difference academically for them. And that would be huge. That, that's kind of like you said, the end goal, um, of course, educate and, and giving them that knowledge, but to impact them as they're learning, and especially at a, a younger age, you know, elementary, middle school, high school, it's crucial. You know, if you're thinking about food and, and you're hungry all the time, then you're, I'd imagine, more sleepy in class. You're not paying attention. Things that you should be absorbing and learning is just going over your head. Yeah, and we're measuring absenteeism rates, all those kinds of things. Yeah. And just to touch on what you just said, a couple years ago, I was at an event in Russell Redding, the Pennsylvania Secretary of Agriculture uh, was there. And he made a comment that I, and I, I actually saw Russell not too long ago. And I said, I, I keep telling people this and I always give you credit, but he made the comment that people can have a lot of problems in life, but if they're hungry, they only have one problem. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, you know, if, if you aren't getting the proper nutrition, everything else is secondary to that. And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to give these kids a great start in life, provide some nutrition to them, let them do well in school and launch them on to whatever they can do then, you know, working in TV or working in a nonprofit or whatever yeah. that is and, and have a successful life ahead of them. Yeah. So now, Brad, what are you most passionate about? Well, if you can't tell, I'm very passionate about what I do. I volunteered for things early on. Um, I think it's it's something that everyone should do if they can. In some way or another, find something you're passionate about. 
It can be at the SPCA and working with animals. It can be helping someone provide food. It can be working with veterans, you know, whatever. There are so many places out there for people to become passionate about something and help others. Um, I, I have on my arm. I did see that tattoo uh, and I didn't, I didn't want to say, but I was wondering uh, what it says. It says change the world. I, I lost my wife to breast cancer four years ago. One of the things she was passionate about was believing that if everyone did enough small things, mm-hmm. those random acts of kindness, that you could change the world. Yeah. That you could make someone's life better by holding the door open for them, by saying hi to them. You know, it doesn't have to be anything big. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I've embraced that. I'm, I'm doing something that I think, hopefully, if I can change one child's life, you know, I, I can sleep well at night. Yeah. And hopefully I'm changing more than one child. Oh, it sounds like a lot more. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I, I, you know I, would, I, would, I don't mean to get preachy to people, but I think, you know, if you can find something that you can do, something small even, to, to help make someone's life better, then do it and sleep well at night. When your head hits the pillow, yeah. you know, go to sleep with a smile on your face. I'm passionate about being passionate. I, I really am. You know, I'm passionate about reading. I'm passionate about travel. I'm passionate about my passionate about my family. Be passionate about something in your life. I, I can tell as soon as I met you, because Brad, I, I haven't known you until you walked in the door here at, at Color Tech, but I could tell just by your smile, the way you carried yourself, and then the conversation we have here, you are you are passionate beyond, and I, I think it's phenomenal because we need that in the world. People are passionate about different things, but whenever you're helping, like you said, vets, um, animals, young children, youth of America, whatever it is, that's huge. Not, not everybody does that, you know, but I think once you do it and you see the impact you're having, then you it wakes you up, sort of to say. Yeah, one, one uh, lesson that life has taught me is that, you know, we, we have a finite period of time here on earth, make the most of it. Yeah. How many years has PowerPacks been around? 17. So now COVID, how did that, and I, I don't want to get too much into COVID, but it had to impact what you all are doing. So I started a PowerPacks in the middle of COVID. Okay. Oh, that's when you started <laughs> with them. Wow. Jumping in the deep end. Yeah, yeah I, I, I did. Yeah. And COVID changed everything we did. We did change our entire process um, because there were no kids in schools Prior to COVID, what Power Packs did was we would deliver bulk food to schools. Volunteers would go to the schools and pack the food where there were no more volunteers in schools because there was no one in schools. Uh, So we had to find a new way to do everything. Honestly, it's become a positive for us because we're getting feedback that the way we're doing it now, which is supplying a, a, a box, a package of food to the schools for kids, the schools like it better. The families like it better, and we might never have changed if it hadn't been for COVID. While COVID has been a, a negative for so many people in so many ways, for us, for Power Packs, it's actually there's been some positive outcomes because yeah. of it. And like you said, had it not happened, you would have never known to make those changes. And now it sounds like you're making it easier on the school, so therefore they'll want to deal with you more and, and work with you guys more. That that's awesome to hear. Um, so now, Brad, how can our listeners uh, connect with you and follow along on, on your journey and then also uh, Power Packs? So as I mentioned, um, you know, our website is powerpacksproject.org. Uh, if someone wants to learn more, you can go there and learn, learn some more information. Um, if you want to volunteer, you know, I mentioned we have lots of volunteers, but we can always use more. Um, if you would like to uh, support us financially and you have the means to do so, um, you know, you can donate there. We, 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 ha- we have to keep the lights on like everyone else. Our costs are going up for everything that we do as well, just like everyone else that's seeing it. You know, for instance, you know, the cost of cardboard 
for, for the boxes that we use yeah. has gone through the roof. Right. Um, just, so just little things that people don't think about. So you can support us in many, many ways and really even just help spread the word of what we do. There are a lot of people out there that don't know about power packs. That's why I'm sitting here with you. I'm one of them. I had no idea. That's that's why I'm sitting here with you to help get the word out about what we do. Spread the word. um, Let people know so that more people can support us and so more people can take advantage of what we're offering. Because we want to get food into the hands of as many people as possible who needs, needs some assistance putting food on the table. Yeah, those that need it most for sure. Yeah. So before we close out, is there anything else you'd like the listeners to know? Just that hunger does exist here. A lot of people don't think that. They think it's a very urban problem. They think Philadelphia and you know New York City, you know wherever, hunger does exist. And it's not even just in the urban areas we have here. It's not just in the city of Lebanon. Mm-hmm. It's not just in the city of Lancaster. Studies have shown that it's, it's really almost split exactly in thirds between urban, suburban, and rural areas. Really? Yeah. Wow. And rural hunger is actually a much more difficult problem to solve because people have to go farther for assistance. They have to weigh, do I spend that money on gas to go to the food pantry or whatever? Or do mm-hmm. I save it to get to my job? So hunger does exist here. There are people in your neighborhood going to your church and school with your kids who probably don't have enough to eat who may be skipping meals to stretch their food dollars. And you can help by helping Power Packs, by helping the Salvation Army, by helping Lebanon County Christian Ministries, you know, any of those organizations who are supplying food to people. And if, you, if you're willing and able to do so, any of us would love to have your support. Well, there you go. I couldn't have said it any better. Brad Peterson from Power Packs Project on the American Grown Podcast and the ColorTech Creative Solutions Studios. Thank you for joining me. Thank you, Austin. I appreciate it. Awesome, Brad. Great job. Thank you, sir. If you want to see more American Grown content, follow along on Facebook and Instagram. Username American Grown Podcast. If you received any value, please share this episode with friends family, and co-workers. And lastly, subscribe and leave a review. If you'd like to be a featured guest on the podcast, please direct message or email Austin at americangrownpod at gmail.com.